0: This is a conversation with Anjan. He's a practical yogi applying ancient skills of yoga and tantra, along with being a licensed coach, meditation guide, and martial artist. He's also the founder of Meditate with Anjan, where he set the goal of meditating with 1 million people in his lifetime. He's also the founder of Yoga Trippy and a mentored yogic meals and yoga shoppy. In this conversation, we discuss the value behind a name, his journey, consciousness, meditation, identity, you know, all the casual questions. And ninjutsu martial arts. Idano no time. YouTube. <laughs> wait. Idano no time. No t- <laughs> Don't make me speak in Malayalam. This is no time. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow on Spotify. Rate 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. This project continues to take a lot of my time, money and effort. So If you'd like to see it continue. Do consider making a small donation on Patreon. And thank you to the people who've already done so. For other forms of love and support. You can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter. Or follow me personally. And now right on might. It's no time. Back in 2002, you changed your name from Anjan to Anjan, inspired by the Sufi philosophy and meaning behind the word, which is Jiski jaan ho, someone who doesn't know his identity, someone who's a stranger. My first question for you is, do you think all of us are Anjan or all of us are strangers and we are all on this quest to find identity?
1: Namaste Shalaj. Thanks so much for having me here. Uh, Before I answer your first question, uh, I'd like to consecrate the space that you've created with the Lego and the Satori and the little Buddha by chanting a little Om. Sure. Shall we do that? Yeah. Okay, so you can inhale and on your exhalation chant the four syllables, Ah, Um, and silence with equal amount of energy and voice and uh, breath okay and for those of you watching you can join us if you want if you're driving don't do this Uh, (laughs) you can uh, keep your palms on your thighs facing upwards maybe close your eyes and just allow our voice to resonate through you so let's do this together so deep inhale Thank you. When I hung out with the Sufi saints, they had a lot of concepts which were new to me, though I had come from a yogic background. But I decided that the name change would um, essentially remind me constantly that we are all in a journey to discover ourselves. And the paradox is that you know me now, but still my name means not known or the unknown. And that paradox seemed very exciting and interesting to me because we are living in a world of paradoxes. Uh, there are stories we are creating and we're believing those stories and they become our reality, which in Sanskrit we call Maya. And it's paradoxical. Though we're swimming in the water, we're constantly looking for it. So this is the paradox that the name implies. So I became a mononym like Madonna or Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Drop my second name. And... Uh, I've enjoyed it ever since. Subsequently, I think um, like five years later, I found out that numerologically, astrologically, and uh, like when you total the name of the number and stuff, it was supposed to give me more wealth, fame and like joy and stuff like that. I didn't know putting another A would change things. But later I understood Oh, numerologically. So I just intuitively did it. And it felt nice, actually,
0: uh, when I went on radio and said my name was Anjan. Does it feel like RJ Anjan, the, one of the most familiar voices in Bangalore, the man who starred in the movie film with Salman Khan and Shilpa Shetty, does it feel like RJ Anjan is a completely different person now looking back or a completely different life that you can't imagine now?
1: Not necessarily. See, radio was a medium I used to connect with people. Now I use meditation as a tool to connect with people. So the function of what I'm doing hasn't changed yet. It's just that uh, the tool I'm using has changed the function is still the same. I'm still connecting with people. I'm still finding ways to give them joy and happiness. I'm still finding ways to make their drive home more um, happy and their drive to the office more happy. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed being on radio for 20 years. Uh, I enjoyed doing uh, theater and movies and other things for like all the time I was involved in the entertainment industry. But I think uh, the industry I'm in now is pretty much entertaining in itself.
0: (laughs) So as you mentioned, one of the reasons why you dropped your name as well was because you didn't want any form of attachment to your name. And so I have a name and I have an attachment to the consequent reputation that comes with it. And when I want people to speak of the name, I want some positive emotions to be evoked because of it. I want some prestige to the name, some impact or some legacy to it. Do you think this attachment to my name can hold me back in life?
1: See, there is no, in yoga there is no real positive or negative. These kind of adjectives only us humans give as we create stories, right? So whether I called you Shalaj or I called you Daisy, would it change who you are
0: essentially? Would it? It's a good question because at times I feel like my name is a part of my No, but would
1: it change who you are if I called you Shalaj or if I called you Lego? Would it change who you are? It'll only change the
0: name that has been given to you. Yeah, can I just push back on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like a part of my personality, also a very small part, might stem from the fact that I feel my name is a bit unique and it means Lotus. Well, we can call you
1: Gagaboo Gang. That's unique too. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm saying, will it, no matter how unique or common it is, will it change who you are? If you didn't know this color was called yellow, what would you call this color? Would it change the quality of the color subsequently by whatever you called it? As a kid, if you were taught this was blue and you grew up to believe this was blue, would it change the quality of this color or this brick or this block? So this is the question I'm trying to ask you. So attachment to name is fine. We all need identity. And how else will I say, thank you for having me on your podcast, Shalaj? if you didn't have a name, right? So you have a name and it's an identity. So having it is fine. But this is why we have the yogic concept of vairagya, detached attachment or inert attachment, where you have something, but you don't necessarily own it, which means if you drop it or lose it, You have no consequence, you have no tension, you have no worry because you never really had it. So even this name, you have to question. Do you really have it? Or is it just something given to you temporarily for your lifespan on this earth? And if you didn't have that name, who would you be? Would you still be the same person? So all humans have to go through this questioning at some point. Is my name who I am? Or is it just a name? And then if your name is who you are, why do you say my name? (laughs) Which means you are separate from your name. Right? So just something for you to think about. Some thought exercises for you to go into
0: deeper. So it's more of a label and that label shouldn't define you.
1: No. See, labels are fine. Without labels, how would you know what is what? How would you have discernment? How would you have preference? You can't have any of that without labels. So labels, identities, boundaries, everything is needed. In the yogic system, we feel there's no need for attachment to any of these. And recognition that you are who you are is beyond any of these labels. And it's interesting because this is the depth of all different, whether you take tantra or yoga or meditation or any kind of ideology or any kind of philosophies, even the Western ones like Socrates or even the new age teachers like Muji or Sadhguru or Ramana Maharshi. This is the essence of the mm, teaching to identify who you are, to see whether your name is you or is just your name.
0: This reminds me of a very bad joke. Uh, do you, do you want there to are say? no
1: bad jokes. It's just jokes people don't understand.
0: <laughs> you might reassess <laughs> this statement. But the joke was like this one common WhatsApp forward, which is that a student asks his meditation teacher, can I send you an email? The teacher says, sure, but no attachments, please.
1: <laughs> That's a good one. It's not a bad joke. I like puns. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for no, the Don't get me started. I'm pun punstoppable. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I definitely want to cover your journey. So... Back in 2000s, you, early 2000s, you were working as a radio presenter at Radio One in Bangalore. And
1: 1998
0: one to 2016, I was a radio presenter. Yeah. But in the middle of that period, you started getting into meditation and healing and yoga as well.
1: Not Actually, I had completely um, given up my family lineage, so to say. I was born into a family that was yeah. yogic, you can say. My grandfather being a Zen master and a teacher of yoga student of Krishnamacharya, a classmate of BK, BKS He knew Ayurveda, Homeopathy, uh, Tantra. He knew all the different um, religious texts and the Shastras, like the Vedas and the Upanishads and all the other different texts. He was very well read. He also had read the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita. He made me read them, the Bible and the Quran and everything. So uh, I was lucky enough to be born into the family like this. I call it brown privilege, you know, and uh, I recognized it only when I was uh, when I was 26 in 2006 is when I recognized it when I had you can say a kind of kundalini awakening it was not so much of an awakening it was more of a like a surcharge of it and then I went to my grandfather and said hey this happened to me he said "Ah, come and he didn't tell me what it was he said okay I will start teaching you some things now but when you're a kid you're never going to grandpa's classes you're just running away You're like who wants to go to grandpa's class right but of course as a child you're you're just forced to sit in meditation classes and sit still and learn the yoga asanas and go for the bhakti sessions and go for the kirtans and the bhajans and the chanting. And every time he's talking to somebody about Ayurveda or homeopathy or enlightenment, you're there listening. So it's impacting your subconscious uh, before you know. So 2016, I started with him. Officially. Um, no, no, I'm getting the math wrong. 2006, I started with him right. when I was 26 um, 2016, he said, okay, I'm done. Get out. I said, what do you mean? I'm done. Get out. He said, no, I'm giving you everything you need. Now you have to find your path. And I'm like, I don't know anything. Then he said, you know, it's been 10 years. I'm like, oh yeah, it's been 10 years. I didn't even know it was a 10 year program. I don't think he knew either. He's just like 10 years. It's done. So it was a cycle, right? So, uh, 2017, he left his physical body. So I think he was preparing me for that. And he knew. And he also called me, he left in Jan, he called me in December and said, okay, I'm going to go in Jan. I said, what do you mean? He said, ah, you don't tell your mom, she'll feel sad, but I can tell you because you can understand it. I celebrate my life and remember me with joy. Okay. So the old man is saying this, he was 88 or something. Like, okay, and then Jan, I get a call from my mom saying, oh, grandpa's no more. He left the physical body willingly, like a yogi does, you know, in a very conscious way. Uh, he refused to come home, he was in the hospital for something else. Like He didn't have many problems, but they... Admitted him to the hospital. My father took him. And he's like, I'm going to stay here. And he left. So um, when I come from such a lineage, it was kind of blasphemous if I couldn't follow his um, teachings and use that to share with other people. So that's what happened in 2016. So I left my high-paying full-time job. Me and my ex-wife separated. I left all my fears and anxieties and worries. And I went back into... Uh, the world you can call of meditation, spirituality, yoga, and tantra.
0: A lot of things I want to explore from that. Let's do it. First, you mentioned the Kundalini awakening. So The first question is, what is Kundalini and what was this awakening?
1: Okay, so Kundalini is this term that's uh, kind of like um, mystical for everybody. And the idea is to demystify it. That's why I call myself a practical yogi. My design is pretty much done, okay? Just to let you know.
0: I'm not going to mess with it.
1: No. Yeah, yeah, the yin and the yang. Yeah, well, yin-yang. There's no and. Oh, right. If you okay. co- if you if you have an and, there's a dichotomy. Maybe we take this out so the and disappears. Right <laughs> now it's yin-yang. So, hmm. um, essentially, Kundalini is nothing but a life force. I brought some Palo Santo for you. This is ethically sourced from Peru, and uh, the family I get it from kind of waits for the wood to fall down. They don't really cut the trees because this wood is a bit um, precious now. And I think the trees are slowly getting endangered. Uh, don't worry, it's not much smoke. So we're just lighting it up for you to hold. And this is a gift for you. Samo Palo Santo for you to light up whenever you want. It smells really nice and it cleanses the space. And so Kundalini essentially is your life force energy that flows through you. To explain it in modern science, our brain has three basic regions, right? So you know the reptilian brain, which is connecting your lower spine all the way till your pineal gland. Then there's your neocortex, or the new brain, neo, which is in the front of the uh, cerebellum. And this is where the matrix got the idea to name their main character Neo, because he's the new brain, the neocortex. And then you have the limbic region, uh, with your metal oblongata and other parts of the brain. I mean, I'm not a scientist, I'm a bio geek, but so these three parts of the brain, if you take out the limbic and the neocortex, we are like any other reptile. We're like a dinosaur, right? And if you mm-hmm. even observe lizards today, they have the similar structure, uh, which is the spinal cord and the vertebrae going all the way up to your sex organs from your pineal gland. So. When a human baby is born, uh, there is some energy through which life force is imbued into the baby. Where does this life come from? So the yogis call this kundalini, right? And they say it lies dormant in a certain region in your body called muladhara or the root area. Uh, The dimension of the root, mm, Mula, root, uh, dimension of the, the root chakra, you can say and uh, you, there are practices to kind of get more sensitive to it. I stay with the, away from the word awakening often because it's already awakened in you. If it was not awakened, you'd probably be lying down in a coma. So your chakras are not blocked. Your kundalini is not unawakened. Since you were born, it's awakened. Our job as humans is to gain sensitivity of it. And gaining sensitivity of it can give you multiple blissful experiences in different dimensions of your life emotionally physically mentally socially sexually financially etc 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 and uh, there's two ways you can do this one is finding techniques which are there in kriya yoga in kundalini yoga in tantra in hatha yoga etc to raise the awareness from lower to higher And the other way is through other techniques like Sufism, through bhakti, which is devotion, through faith, through religion, through worshipping, through many other things where you allow grace to descend. So either humanity rises to become divinity or divinity descends to experience humanity. These are the only two facets of us as an organism. We are human beings here, forgetting that we are spiritual beings. We're also spiritual beings here, enjoying this human experience. This is the dichotomy of the yin-yang. This is the dichotomy and the paradox that exists in all human experience. So Kundalini is this life force energy that flows through you. Our job as humans is to become more sensitive to it. Sometimes we do it without even knowing what it is called or what it is. And maybe most humans have already experienced this, maybe when they saw a sunset or when they found a bliss moment when they heard a song or when they were making love or when they were swimming in the ocean or when they were in nature, or when they saw a beautiful painting. There are times when this, mm, the sensitivity to this energy can, you know, like when you thought of somebody and they called you, this is probably kundalini at work, right? You dreamt of something, it came true. The patterns you're seeing, all
0: this is kundalini at work. When I'm thinking of the same thing and someone else thinks of the exact same thing.
1: Could be coincidence, but if you (laughs) both are connected, (laughs) not just physically, but also energetically, it could be Kundalini at work. Because remember, the limbic brain works with limbic resonance. I'm going to do something now. Why did you repeat that action? It's entrenched into your limbic brain. You feel like doing that, right? So these are your mirror neurons working. And just like the mirror neurons, you have a bunch of other limbic neurons, which imitate. So Kundalini transfers through these limbic systems limbic
0: resonance mm. i have a lot of things to explore and you keep giving me more things to explore so no, no, we'll do
1: episode number 2 <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so before i ask the questions that i want to ask now i think it's better to set the premise Okay. so i want to dive into your practice a bit let's dive in so i apologize for the most basic and silly question why are you apologizing do you feel bad yeah i feel terrible <laughs> don't i see apology is something that most
1: people they take for granted yeah so for all your viewers i want to give you a suggestion every time you apologize or say sorry you're diminishing your self-worth and self-love a little bit. Instead, say, I thank you for accepting my questions, though they might be silly. So in case you go late to a meeting, they'll say, sorry, I'm late. You say, I appreciate you waiting for me. Say you call somebody and they're busy. I'm sorry, I'm calling you now. You must be busy. Thank you for picking up my call, though you're busy. So every, every time you transfer an apology and uh, instead make it appreciation or gratitude, one, you're not destroying your own self-worth. And you're creating a vibration of joy and positivity. So don't apologize unless you really have stabbed somebody and hurt them. Why would you apologize? And most of the time, people when people say sorry, they don't really mean it. And I have students, when I say this to them, uh, I had this student the other day, she's like, I'm sorry for saying sorry.
0: (laughs) It beats the entire purpose. Okay, so let's get into the question that sparked this debate, which is, what is meditation?
1: You tell me what you feel meditation is first, so I'll build on from there.
0: Well, I'm a rookie in this field. Me too.
1: I'm a beginner. I just began before you.
0: Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) from what I've uh, come across, there's this constant tension between meditation and mindfulness. Today, it's very hard to separate what some people market as meditation is actually mindfulness and what's meditation. From my understanding of meditation, it's just do nothing. Mm. Nothing at all. Can you? It's tough for me. I do try, but it's very hard for me to go beyond a minute before the thought comes in then again.
1: Even doing nothing is doing something because you're doing nothing.
0: Yeah, there is a, there is a paradox in that. See,
1: I'm telling you, life is full of paradoxes. Yeah. So instead, I prefer the term
0: be. Do
1: nothing is not the same as be. When you're doing nothing, you're still doing something. So meditation is being. Meditation is mistaken as a technique a or verb. techniques. Yeah. That's right, a verb. Hmm, it could be a verb, but it's not a technique. Meditation is a state that you reach. So most people go to a meditation class to find relaxation. But only if you're relaxed will you find meditation. Right? Mindfulness is a modern, when I say modern, say 300 years old practice. Of course, the Buddhists have mastered this practice. And mindfulness is a tool to reach the meditative state. So, there is mindlessness, which is mindlessly without awareness doing things. There is mindfulness, where being hyper focused on any activity you're doing or hyper focused on multiple activities you're doing, depending on your skill level. And then there is mind emptiness, where the hyper focus also disappears and you just merge with everything you're doing. So, take an example let's take a musician. Okay, you can mindlessly play the ukulele and not make any sense. Then you can mindfully of, string a few chords together and you make a song. And then eventually, you're not thinking of the chords, you're just merging with the song. There's no difference between the singer and the song. There's no difference between the dancer and the dance. There's no difference between the painter and the art. There's no difference between the meditator and the meditation. So you become meditation. You become meditative. This is the easiest way I can articulate this. It's difficult to stop thinking. It's difficult to stop the mind. So when the yogis say stop the mind, what they mean is just the neocortex. I'm a practical yogi. So I like the scientific... Because I was a skeptic, right? Till it worked for me. And today, so many studies across the world, they've studied these uh, Buddhist monks and so many other people who are meditating for many years. And they find that the neocortex switches off. And especially in practices like Kundalini and other tantric practices, the reptilian and the limbic brain lights up with electrical impulses. So are you able to slow down and create a distance between you and the experience you're having? As in the experiencer and the experience. We already reached a certain state of meditativeness when I asked you, are you your name? That already got your intellect thinking. When the intellect subsides, you will find some peace. Or you will have the urge to know, which is every seeker has suffering. and That's why seekers suffer. And once you understand, there's no more suffering. Unless you want to seek something else, then there's suffering there. So, to me, meditation is a state you reach. And everybody can reach this state and everybody already has to reach this state sometime in their life. I like to demystify things. It's not complicated. You don't have to sit in a cave with a certain asana or mudra. You can sit in a chair with your spine erect. We say spine erect so that your spinal cord acts like an antenna. Nothing, no other reason. If You're lying down. There are techniques like yoganidra and other things where you can lie down and also reach the meditative state. But the state you reach when you merge with something or when you're able to create a distance between the experiencer and the experienced, or the witnesser and the witnessed, or the observer and the observed, that is the state you reach. Like when you were watching the sunset. This is what people call the flow state these days. So there is Jamie Wheel and his partner whose name I don't remember who have the flow genome project. And I would say it's not necessarily the meditative state, but it could be also a state where the neofrontal cortex is completely like switched off and they're just in a state of flowing with a flight or fight brain which is a reptilian brain most martial artists reach this state even when we train we're not thinking of where to move next we're not thinking of where to move next instead we're intuitively moving based on the training that we've got over the last many years of repetitive movements or of situations where we've repeated as a martial artist so the flow state could possibly be a state where you no longer are consciously doing things So um, I don't know which psychologist was, he explained the four states of any skill set. Yeah, he said, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, unconscious competence. So I would say the flow state is unconscious competence, where you don't know that you need to know, but you just know. So let's take the example of driving. Let's break this down. Like, so I'm sure many of you watching are Drivers, or many of you listening are drivers, right? So, when you first started driving, you had unconscious incompetence. You didn't know what you didn't know. You didn't know what was what, and you're like, oh, I just wish I could drive. Quickly, you went to conscious incompetence. You know, that's an accelerator brake clutch. You know, that's a gearbox. You know, if you put this, it moves back, it goes forward, but you still don't know how to drive. You're still incompetent. So, conscious incompetence. And then you have conscious competence, where you're driving with your arms on the 510 and you're looking everywhere like a Learner and you can still drive, so you have the competence and you're conscious that you're driving and you have to be very aware. But today, when you drive, you have one hand on the wheel, the other hand in your hair, and you're not even thinking of the road you're on, or when you have to put the indicator, when you have to press the brake. Unconscious competence. Flow state for driving. So you can hack this flow state. And that's what Jamie wheel and his partner, I don't remember his name, they teach about how you can hack this flow state by doing certain things to reach a high level of skill competency. So these high-perform athletes who they're studying, uh, who are doing skydiving and cliff jumping and snowboarding and other high, high, heavy-duty, high-performance athletic work, they have to be in a flow state. Because they cannot consciously think, okay, what do I do next? There's a tree there. If you're skiing, you have to know how to maneuver and It's too move. late. It's too late. Yeah. So they have to have the unconscious competence already. So they've built their skill level, which
0: is why they say keep practicing till you know that you're good at it. Are there any tips or any common practices and I use the word practice also hesitatingly to get into this meditative state of mind? Mm.
1: I think the easiest way to get into this state is to find stillness in your body. So this is why I love the Japanese practices like mm, Kinhin or Shikintaza or Zazen. Zazen means seated meditation. So um, when you're able to still your body and shut off some of your senses, so close your eyes, Perhaps listen to only certain specific sounds, music, frequencies, or nature. You're not eating anything, so your taste is closed. You're pretty much still with your body, so a sense of touch is also pretty much shut down. So when your sensory input reduces, there forms a certain stillness in your body. This reflects in the stillness in your mind and stillness in your spirit. Thereby, again, breaking the dichotomy of mind and body and spirit and making it one unit, mind, body, spirit, just you and the more you can find stillness the more you will reach the state much easier so you can practice and every day you can find 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes or eventually it can be all the time always creating a distance between the experience you're having and you as an experiencer always discovering stillness always listening to the words in between what is not said always finding out the moment between your inhale and your exhale Or the split second when your heart lub-dub between lub and dub. (laughs) So this is the meditative state. And there's many, many tools and techniques. I would say sit in stillness and observe silence. And the thoughts will come. Let them come. Don't engage with them. Let them come, let them go. You're not creating them so you don't have to destroy them. Wherever they're coming from, they will go. How long can you sit like that before you run out of thoughts? Every time a thought comes, say, I already thought of you. I already thought of you. I already thought of you. I say 40 minutes, you will run out of thoughts. For somebody who's a hyper thinker, one hour, you will run out of thoughts. You would have thought of everything you can think of. As long as you're intellectually thinking, okay, I thought of you, get out. I thought of you, go. I thought of you. You have nothing else to think about.
0: And then that point would be when you're closer to a meditative state. And that point you will be in a meditative state. Where you're
1: not necessarily not thinking, you're just not engaging or focusing on any thoughts. You find the stillness in your body creates a stillness in your mind, in your neocortex. And it's like a glass of water. You keep it still. The dirt settles. And then you have clarity.
0: You also mentioned kinhin, which is this form of moving meditation, I believe. What is this practice exactly? So in the two Zazen schools that I have studied and been ordained in,
1: uh, I used to visit Japan every year uh, to train my martial arts also. Uh, Zazen means seated Zen, Zai seated, where you sit for long hours in stillness, and your only objective is to sit still with no other objective. And sitting still itself gives you all the other benefits. So, to take a break once in four hours, you stand up and you walk mindfully. This is called Kinhin. So, now that alone has also been taken, and mindful walking or walking meditation is called Kinhin from
0: both the Soto and Rinzai schools of Zen. Right. Okay, that makes more sense. So this is common Buddhist saying if there was no illusion then there would be no enlightenment and you have spoken about the awakening you were hesitant to use the word awakening but you had um, that state of mind at that point when you had the kundalini awakening apart from that have you ever had any spiritual out-of-body experience and I know you keep the spiritual fluff away usually from the material that you teach but Have you ever had this experience where it's been completely out of body and that you felt this moment that everything's an illusion?
1: Last evening we had a class and all of us had experiences where we transcended body awareness. Every single student. Every time in my class it happens. It's not something special that no human can achieve. You can transcend body awareness right now on this podcast table if you like. Satori is not a destination. It's a journey. So it's not somewhere to reach and far away and unattainable and have to live like a monk for 60 years. You must understand that during the Buddha's time, his top 70 followers were monks. So their entire ideology was renouncement. But yours and mine and everybody in an urban scenario, your idea is not, you're not going to renounce and give up all your clothes and cars and wives and go and live in a mountain. So can you then find Satori, constant? slow enlightenment while doing your householder activities. This is what Tantra teaches. Because Tantra is the householder's form of enlightenment. And the Tantric teaching is that there is no destination. Enlightenment is not somewhere you reach. Out-of-body experience is not something you have once you reach somewhere. You can have it any night. It can happen anytime. So don't be surprised if it does because this is your normal way of existing. People who have forgotten it, majority of humanity, are existing at a subhuman level. So there's nothing superhuman about Satori. It's normal to have it. Of course, if you're existing at subhuman, question yourself. Why aren't you joyful? Who decides that? Why are you causing yourself frustration and tension? Why have you given your remote control to somebody else to when they say something, you get affected? Start with the basic things like that. And then get over your drama. and Get over things like, oh, I have such trauma from my childhood. You know all the dramatic lines that you hear everybody saying and then get over accepting truths that don't resonate with you called indoctrination. Get over the need to impress and find validation. So work on these things and Satori will automatically happen. That's why I prefer to work on the practical aspects. So I can teach somebody to have out-of-body experiences anytime but it's irrelevant because they're going to go home and feel depressed. What's the point? Instead I'd rather teach you how to be bit more blissful, then you yourself will have an out of body experience when you need it. So this is what I ask people when they go to events like ecstatic dance or something like that. I said are you going to dance to find ecstasy? Or are you ecstatic so you dance? My method is the other. Find joy first. Everything else will come. These are called siddhis in yoga. There's the hatha yoga way, which is you build it up till you get the siddhi. And there's the tantric way. Just live a life of joy and pleasure, of ease. And then all the Siddhis will come. Because the opposite of ease is disease. So it's all about living a healthy life. Healthy mind, healthy body, healthy spirit, healthy relationships, healthy finance.
0: Right. I would like to thank you for listening to my next silly question. Let's do it. Which is, what is consciousness?
1: Who decides the question is silly? Your consciousness is the one that decided the question is silly. Your consciousness is what decides about every single movement you make. Consciously, subconsciously, superconsciously. It allows you to function. It allows you to carry forth all the other, you know, involuntary actions. Like right now, your body is digesting some food you had 15 hours ago because you're doing intermittent fasting. And your heart is pumping blood. Your lungs are breathing. Your nervous system is... Moving and the neurons are lighting up, your endocrinal system is releasing a bunch of hormones. Who is running all this? Consciousness. So, in my practical way of understanding it, this is consciousness. Of course, in the tantric system, you have Shiva Shakti, you have Purusha Prakriti, and so many other different deep Sanskrit definitions. But this is the simplest way you can approach it. Whatever is running your system, parts you're aware of and parts you're unaware of, that's your consciousness. But your consciousness is still not you. Because you say my consciousness. And this is explored uh, very deeply by the Advaita philosophy of non-duality. Right? Where there is a distance created between even your consciousness and you. Where you experience your consciousness. And therefore you are not your consciousness. So to answer your question, what is consciousness? Things that run in you. With your awareness and without your awareness,
0: that's consciousness. How do you view the relationship between consciousness and the mind?
1: The Western idea of the mind is uh, new and, in my opinion, limited. Mm. Let's say this was post Carl Jung and Freud. The Freudian understanding of the division of the mind. The Eastern understanding or the yogic understanding of the mind is that it's split into 84 parts and four main parts, which are respectively Uh, Manasa, Ahankara, Buddhi, and Chitta. So the Manasa in general stands for all the memories that we have. So your uh, memory from this lifetime, memory from other dimensions that you could call lifetimes or multiple realities, your genetic memory from your ancestors, why you have the same skin color as your grandfather, why do I have the paternal balding like my grandfather, etc. Then you have the biological or kind of your DNA memory, which means no matter what you do, you will always become a human, right? We're all breathing the same air, but uh, the plant is not you. You are not the plant. Why is that? Because your DNA memory says I have to become a human with two hands, two legs. Sometimes when the DNA is, um, you know, like um, I think genetically not proper, that's why you have deformed babies. But they are well-formed babies, just their DNA is formed that way. So, so all this forms manasa. Ahankara is anything you do, Aham, myself, anything you do with building identity. So, your name, your nationality, your caste, creed, color, your job, your role as a brother, husband, wife, daughter, sister, teacher, student, podcaster, podcast guest. All this is ahankara, is one part of the mind. Third part of the mind is buddhi, roughly translated as intellect, but also stands for all the other cognitive activities, cognitive abilities that you're able to have. Everything in cognition is the buddhi and the fourth is chitta which is the you can say the higher consciousness or consciousness or the unwavering higher intelligence and the essence of yoga in patanjali's yoga sutra he says yogascha chitta vritti nirodha which means the science of yoga is to allow the chitta to be in stability vritti is movement so if you can find that equilibrium in your chitta that is the essence of yoga so the connection between consciousness and mind is a western dichotomy in the eastern system there is no um nothing called consciousness everything is based in these four divisions
0: right you also touched upon ahamkara which is the identity and this is something i wanted to explore more with you because at some point everyone's going to ask themselves who am i and what is my identity so how do you view that is it so you what you're saying is it's separate from the mind and separate from the consciousness, separate from your physical form as well. There's, there's an I to you. There's an identity to you. That's, that's beyond all of these elements.
1: So the easiest way I can articulate this is if you can observe it, it is not you. If you can observe it, it cannot be you. So whatever you can observe, it can't be you because you're observing it. So, this who am I question, and now it's gained popularity. But in the essence, it's to identify who's the one having this observation, who's the observer. So, the minute you say, I am something, you are not that, because you can observe it. There's a distance between the I and that which you are. So, this is not an answer you can say out loud. It's something for you to look inside, find, look, find. Appreciate, confirm. And once you even have that for a snap second, it will never leave you. And you can have that right now for a snap second if you'd like. Would you like it? Sure. Close your eyes. Okay. Drop all the ideas of identity that you have kept with yourself. Your name, nationality, caste, creed, job, role, age, gender. Tell me what's left. nothing. Great. Drop the idea of nothing. Let that idea also dissolve. Now tell me what's left.
0: Tempt to say nothing again. but Okay, say it. I mean, I'm not sure what to articulate the...
1: State you cannot the articulate it. Just tell me what you feel.
0: Just, I'm um, in the moment, I would imagine. Okay, drop The
1: idea of the imagination that you are in the moment. Drop all imagination, drop all memory. No need. See what else is left. This deep recognition of a timeless state, which was never born, never shall die, has no beginning, has no end, is your essence. That which you are recognizing now, does it have a shape? shapeless, it's formless. Do you feel it was there before you came into this body? Where was it? Was it there? Will it be there after you leave this body? Where will it go? Will it go? Was it born? Can it die? Does it have any nationality? Does it have any name? Does it have any color, texture, shape? Can you even name it? Or can you only experience it? How do you feel now that you have experienced it? You recognize every single cell in your body is smiling with joy. You can bring that smile to your face. Now you need to share
0: with everybody listening and watching how you feel. Like you said, it's very hard to articulate and I'm not someone who's good at articulating these and I have tried several of these uh, techniques in the past as well it is a... the honest answer is I actually don't know how do to... you
1: feel blissful always that's it always. that's the answer the more you recognize who you are you'll only have bliss you won't have tensions worries, troubles you won't have things that pull you down you will only have things that always keep adding value to yourself and humanity
0: when you eliminate the sense of identity and uh, everything that you've so far defined as yourself, can it be a very defeating thing also? Because obviously it gives you a lot of bliss.
1: None of the teachings ever says eliminate the sense of identity. It only says discard it temporarily. But when you meet somebody, have that sense of identity. How else will you introduce yourself? You can't say, I'm, high, I'm nothingness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when do you meet? Oh, we'll meet when there is no time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, there are people who talk like this. Stay away from them. But, uh, nobody said eliminate. But, Discard it when you reach a state when you realize you no longer need it. I'm just uh, putting some last finishing touches to my yeah.
0: design. So, how do you think that we should approach any goals we keep in life? First, should we even keep goals? Should we have any desire to leave behind an impact? Or all of these should be discarded. And this is just a very modern adaptation of how See, we should live
1: life. Impact is we give ourselves too much importance. What is impact? Does the sun need your power to wake up every day and shine? Does the earth care who you are when it rains down a thunderstorm? Does the earthquake say, okay, you have done impact, so I'm not going to break down your house. No, we give ourselves too much importance. Right? So I would say, of course, have goals. Of course, have visions. Of course, have priorities. Of course, have objectives. To live a really fulfilled, joyous, exuberant life. But don't have so much importance that you're going to save the world and change the planet. Even Elon Musk is trying. 600 years later, I don't know if we will remember his name. Do you remember names of kings who were alive 1,000 years ago unless it was written somewhere? Now with the internet, maybe, yeah, you can leave a legacy and live for posterity. But after you're dead, do you really care? (laughs) So the fun of being exuberant and ecstatic in the moment goes away when you're living in the future. The joy of completely enjoying this present state goes away when you're worried about the past. So uh, of course have goals, of course have objectives and be ready to fail because you might not reach those goals and not fulfill those objectives. And that resilience is what is taught in my martial art. It's called ninjitsu. Nin means perseverance. to Keep going. And with nin, you reach satori.
0: Is that detachment harder now because of all the access that we have to, let's say, food, luxury, riches, social media has also shown us a different world out there. Has it become way harder with time? See, this harder,
1: softer, easier is only stories we tell ourselves. If you say it's harder, it's harder. If you say it's not hard, it's not hard. Be careful what story you tell yourself. Right. So for example, you're constantly telling yourself the story that's a silly question. Of course, I understand it's a self-depreciating humor and it could be funny, but don't let yourself believe that story because it's not a silly question, it's a powerful question. And so similarly, people tell themselves stories, ah, oh, this is so hard, and it ends up being their reality. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just like why we don't apologize and instead we appreciate. So this is the reality. I mean, we see things with with adjectives. And one of my Zen masters told me, he said, the mountain doesn't think it's tall or short. Only we say tall mountain, short mountain. The mountain is just there. So no situation is hard or easy. It's a story that we want to attach to it. And stories are amazing. Stories are attractive. Stories are sexy. Stories are appealing. So that's why we create stories. And that's why social media is doing so well because it's full of stories. The art of storytelling as humans. This is a story. Through this podcast, we're telling a story. But my urge to everybody watching and listening is always observe before you absorb. So decide if that story works for you. If it doesn't, don't take it in. Why do you need it? Right? So to me, no, it's not hard or it's not easy. It's just is something you have to experience as a human. If you're ready, you will. If you're not, you won't. No problem. Everybody operates at their level of consciousness. So no need for any spiritual superiority, which I find many of my peers have. Oh, I'm meditating and you're not. But no need even for, like even my vegan friends. I'm vegan. You're, you eat chicken? Right? So, I mean, there's so much misappropriation and spiritual superiority for these things which every human has access to. There's no big deal. Everybody, anybody can do it. I like to simplify things. People like to dramatize and complicate things. It's actually very simple. You don't need to complicate it so much. So don't think of it as... Human, humanity has always had the three brains. Right? So whether it was with social media or whether it was telling stories on a campfire, there were stories. Only the medium has changed. Today it's social media, tomorrow it'll be something else. It'll be, point your finger out and you see a person, you know, hologram there and you're talking to them. (laughs) These stories are collectively called Maya. Mm. Or in the Bhagavad Gita it's called Krishna Leela,
0: the play of Krishna. For the longest time, spirituality has been tied in with meditation and yoga but you have always spoken more as a practical yogi and you've often said that there's no spiritual fluff in the work you do. How do you view this tension between science and uh, spirituality or science and the occult and why have you taken the approach that you've taken?
1: I don't see a tension.
0: I feel science is catching up
1: with what yoga said 15,000 years ago yeah. and we'll give it its time to catch up. Science is baby. Um, <laughs> and, and Edison discovered only like 200 years ago, right? What uh, yogis wrote in the text 5,000 years ago. Right? Western science is now discovering many things like the first brain surgery was done by Sushritra is recorded in carbon dated books 5000 years ago in Sushruta Samhita and other Ayurvedic books the first western brain surgery happened I don't know what 60 years ago I don't know so there's many things I mean there's even airplanes and atom bombs and hydrogen bombs and time travel and teleportation in the yogic texts science will catch up we allow it to again these are stories so you decide which story works for you yeah. and accept that. So if the story that no, or unless it's scientifically proven, I will not accept it works for you. That's fine. But remember that most scientific theories are not proven. Even it's the theory of evolution. <laughs> it's not the proof of evolution, right? So of course there are forces and these forces are called karma. Gravity is karma of the earth connecting you down to the earth. Um, genetic growth is the karma of the mango seed. It will never become a mango tree. This is what yogic system calls karma. So the science always existed. Western science is catching up with yogic science. Both are sciences. So there's no fight or there's no I mean it's perceived by many people who haven't read both sides enough. So I don't see a I don't see a fight or a what's the word you used? detention. I don't see a detention.
0: Yeah. No, tension. I don't see a tension. I'm, right. I, I see relaxation. Science is catching up. So why have you chosen the approach of no spiritual fluff in the work you do and more of pragmatism? Into
1: because work? I'm working with city-based, urban students and uh, clients. Right. So they still have to go to work. They still have to face their boss. They still have to be in a traffic jam. They still have to pay their bills. They still have to deal with marital trouble. They still have to deal with bringing up kids. If I was living in Bali or Goa like I did, or even in Rishikesh or in the Himalayas, yeah, it would be different. I would have an ashram and you would come for satsangs. But here, this is what is needed. So that's why my story that I'm telling myself and therefore my immediate community is that I'm a practical yogi, giving you practical tips and ideas based on yogic and tantric teaching. This is my story. So I would say all of us need stories. Make your story magnificent. Like your podcast. It's a magnificent story. You could just have, I don't know, you could just have like some microphone random without the Lego, but you've created a story, right? And that art of storytelling is what adds value to somebody
0: listening to the story. Right. I'm very tempted to ask you this question. I didn't plan it originally. Don't resist temptation. I'm not going to. So... Do you often sit back and contemplate the universe and the cosmos, maybe the uh, possibility of extraterrestrial life, other galaxies, other planets? Is this something that you think about? What is it to contemplate? I mean, you either know it or you don't know it. Contemplation is a futile
1: activity. I mean, of course, you do need to contemplate if there's something that you feel you haven't thought about, a new perspective that somebody shared. So when I hear a perspective that I've never ever received before, then I contemplate. But most of the perspectives you said, it's been well-received and I don't have to contemplate on it.
0: Does the mystery not excite you that maybe there might be some extra dress in life? I'm sure there might
1: be. But how does it make a difference to my life presently, currently with this podcast or anywhere else? So this in common pop culture is called FOMO. Yeah. (laughs) Right? As yogis, we have JOMO. Joy of missing out. Right. If I don't know something, I'm happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) If I need to know it, it will come to me. When the extraterrestrial lands here, then quickly I will learn how to be compatible with them. (laughs) Till then, why do I need to even know? Unless, of course, it's interesting me. So I'm interested in quantum physics, so I'm reading about the Large Hadron Collider, and the God particle, and Higgs boson, and everything happening at CERN, because the nerd in me is interested. But I don't have to contemplate. There's other people doing that on my behalf, scientists who have deep knowledge in quantum physics, and I read their perspectives. It's not my perspective. I've never been to CERN, so I don't know if it's even real. I'm only reading about it.
0: Yes. Won't there be a joy in finding out that there could be a very different form of life that could exist? Because currently we're very conditioned to think about humans, plants, animals. But there might be a completely different dimension of life that could exist. Wouldn't that bring you some kind of...
1: There are already multiple dimensions of life that exist. Why will I be surprised by it? Once you've experienced other dimensions, then you're not surprised by it. The first time you see fire, you're excited. You put your finger and you burn. But once you burnt, is there any more excitement in putting your finger in the fire? Of course, there are other dimensions. But why would you want to explore them? You're going to get burnt. right? Many are better not even spoken about. And across cultures, they've been called whatever, ghosts, genies, spirits, black magic. So, Of course, there are other dimensions. There are entities in these other dimensions. Why burn your fingers? Enjoy this dimension the most. Live a life of peace and joy and exuberant ecstasy. Why bother about the other dimensions? Then when you've really found how to always be exuberant, always be full of life, then you say, okay, what else is there? First fix this before you go to the moon. If your earth is not fixed, what's the point in going to the moon on Mars? You're going to destroy that also. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like somebody who's having marital problems advising everybody else on marriage. It's like somebody having psychological problems advising everybody else with psychological advice. And this is the concept of wounded healers. Would you go to a fitness class with somebody who has, who's not fit? You wouldn't. So why would you go to a psychologist who has psychological problems, no matter how well-trained they are? Wouldn't you rather go to a yogi to find peace because he's peaceful? Right? So there's many things like this people have to question. And there comes the questioning and introspection. But if you're pretty much in clarity, you don't need to introspect anymore. Because the clarity is so... It's so clear. There's no need to introspect. Ask me anything and I'll speak to you with clarity. And it's not coming from introspection. It's just coming from a clear seeing of what is real and what is not. What is truth and what is a story. And the minute you can make out this difference and create a distance between you and the story you're creating, you see what the truth is. And then anything you can answer easily because there's no need to introspect. And if I don't know, like about ETs, I don't know. Nobody knows. If they know, they haven't told you yet. Right? Many people say they have had, I don't know, extraterrestrial visitations and stuff. I haven't met anybody. I've of course seen some YouTube videos because it's, I'm curious. But I don't have that FOMO of, oh, what if they are really extraterrestrials? Why haven't I met them? I don't care. If they want to meet me, they will come and say hi. Right? It's like saying, oh, I've never been to Germany. There's so many Germans and I've never met a German. That's FOMO for Germans, no? Similar to extraterrestrials. Why well, have FOMO for them if they have to meet you? Instead... Can we see our world as so magical and beautiful? This thing you're dismissing as humans and plants and animals. You know what a miracle it is? One sperm matches with one egg and forms a zygote and an embryo. What magical miracle is that? Why don't you discover that a bit more by going within? The food you eat, you eat an apple, it becomes you. What a miracle.
0: Why go extraterrestrials, right? Have you ever felt the presence of these spirits, as they call them, or souls that are flitting around? So
1: not just me, but many humans have. And the ones that are more sensitive feel. But you don't have to be scared of them because as long as you're not troubling their dimensions, they're not going to trouble you in your dimension. Right? So just enjoy your own dimension and ignore other dimensions till you're really fulfilled with your life. So not just me, but there's many, many humans who have experienced other dimensions. You don't have to give them a label like ghosts or jinns or genies or spirits or uh, other beings or yakshas or anything. But there are some practices in tantra through which you can communicate with them. And I have been to many different, let's say, lineages and teachers. And I've been initiated in those practices. But they're irrelevant. Because now I look back and I'm like, it's a waste of time. I needn't even have done that to reach a realization that I've reached today. That everything is within you.
0: I'm tempted to ask you a lot of questions that are not in the script. So my script director is going to jump off the bridge. Part two. Part two. <laughs> <laughs> but I will ask one final question off the cuff and then we move on back to our format. A lot of people talk about this being a simulation of sorts. Because of the possibilities of life forms that could exist out there and they could be started before us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've known them theory. What do you think of that theory?
1: The Wachowski brothers made a beautiful movie called The Matrix. Now they're the Wachowski sisters. So they studied a lot of the ancient yogic texts and the shastras and the Bhagavad Gita in specific when they formed this idea, right? So the Bhagavad Gita and many other texts clearly says that this world is a simulation. It's a Maya. But the simulation is not created by some extraterrestrial being or somebody sitting there with a remote control device. It's created by you. And when I say you, I mean you and me, a collective consciousness. A super intelligence that's creating this manifest world. So this is what the texts say. I'm neither of belief nor disbelief. To me, it's irrelevant. As long as people can live a fulfilling, purposeful, intentional, peaceful, healthy life. What's the point in contemplating all this? We're not, we're not masters in philosophy. We're not masters in... We're not... Who's that guy who sat like this and wrote philosophical things? We're not the poet Rumi. I mean, if you are, then sit and this is your job. But if you're working in a company and you just want to live a happy, peaceful life, you don't have time for this. And if you want to retreat to the mountains for ten days and do this, then do that, then you'll find answers. So I don't spend time on on these on these things because they're irrelevant to me. I watched the movie Matrix and I loved it and it got me thinking. But to me, it's not relevant to even spend even one second contemplating on this. You can do it when you're a bunch of friends having some Stuff that intoxicates you. Midnight musings. <laughs> That's when most people
0: talk about these things. Simulations and aliens. <laughs> That's number one. And
1: it's science fiction, if you like the genre, yes. you will
0: enjoy it. All right. Okay. So I definitely want to touch martial arts with you. First question is, what is ninjutsu? Mm. Nin is to persevere. Jitsu means an art form.
1: So ninjutsu is an ancient martial art, which uh, teaches you how to keep going on no
0: matter what. I believe this is a form martial arts that was practiced by the ninjas and the shinobis and the samurais. The
1: ninjas yeah. are a Western creation. They were never called ninjas in Japan. Even today, if you go to Japan and say ninjas, they laugh at you. <laughs> so the traditional name of the martial art is Budo, Taijutsu. Bu means war. Do means the path. Budo, the path of war. Tai means body. Jutsu means movement, art, warfare. Japanese words have depth, like Sanskrit words. Each word has multiple meanings. But Budo Taijutsu is what the Budo-ka, like the Karate-ka, practice. And all the samurai families used to practice a type of Budo. There are more than 2,000 schools of Budo in Japan. So Nin is a collection of Budo through which uh, people who practiced it persevered no matter what. So the samurai jutsu, we also have samurai jutsu in my system, uh, were a code of honor, ethics, battle only during a certain time of the day, let the enemy sleep, seppuku, which is ritual suicide and many other things which are all about honor and pride. The ones who didn't have this were called the shininobi or people who didn't have this and they practiced ninjutsu. So you can say this this thing but uh, there's other words like ninpo and many other things that nintai, many other words that attach the uh, prefix nin to it.
0: From everything I've read about this uh, martial art. Don't believe. Don't believe it. One thing that struck out to me, you can tell me if it is right or wrong. It said that this is a martial art more about feeling the situation and feeling the opponent Absolutely. and the attack. And it's not about blocking the next attack, but rather feeling what he's going to do next and then reacting to that. So
1: it's a system where there's no attack or defense. That's a very dualistic way of sports to look at things. There's just situational awareness. So self defense is only when you are one person, with situational awareness, you're aware of the situation. Maybe somebody has a gun. You can't disarm him because there's a kid behind you and the bullet might fire and kill the kid. This is situational awareness. Instead, give him your money. Let him buy a burger for himself. That's why he's stealing from you, right? So this is situational awareness. So it goes beyond attack and defense because attack and defense is also very um, relative. What is an attack and defense? If, I, if somebody slapped you, attack or defense? Attack. He slapped you because you slapped him first. Attack or defense? Defense. So he slapped you because you slapped him first because he winked at your girlfriend. Attack or defense? Yeah. attack. He winked at your girlfriend because she said, hi, sweetie, thinking he was somebody else. So attack or defense is so relative. It doesn't exist. There's only conflict awareness, conflict resolution. And the conflict today is not the physical conflict in battlefields. So we use the battlefield concepts to use it in life, in conference room, in traffic jams, at interactions with other humans. So that's why this is an art that's very applicable to life. Though there's many people still in battle kind of situations, army, forks, um, policemen, uh, special forces, FBI, CIA, they're all training this. They come to the Grand Master in Japan and train with them. So many top agents in the world, even KGB I've seen, um, train this martial art and I've seen them in Japan.
0: Interesting. Another tenet that I read um, online was that well, most martial arts... Uh, are this battle, not with an opponent, but with yourself. Don't you feel like there's a, then there's the, the identity or the ego, then it's implicit in martial arts, because you are fighting something, which Mm. is yourself.
1: See, there's no fighting. There's no fighting. There's no battle with yourself. How I like to explain it is, unless you understand the, aham, you can't understand the kara. Let me explain. Unless you understand, unless you've experienced darkness, you will never appreciate what is light. Unless you've truly felt hate from somebody, you will never know what is it to be loved. Similarly, unless you've learned how to be violent, you can never be peaceful. Many people say I'm peaceful, but they're not peaceful, they're helpless. Somebody goes to stab them, they'll get stabbed. That's not peaceful, that's helpless. Somebody comes to stab me, I can break his arm. But I choose not to. That is peaceful. Because I've understood violence and the implications of violence, I can choose peace. That's the difference.
0: Is that an important journey to have? To, of course. To achieve peace, you need to understand violence. Through it's core. Is
1: this. Unless you go one side, you can't go find the other.
0: That's why this was our
1: Lego design today. There's no beginning and end. There's no, there's no violence and peace. It just is a situation. It can be violent and peace at the same moment. So the classic example is if you kill somebody, is it right or wrong?
0: depends on the situation.
1: Exactly, right? So you kill somebody in general, you go to jail. But in the battlefield, if you kill somebody, you're given an award. So the act of killing itself is neither good or bad. It's neither violent or non-violent. It's only the quality and the situation that we put to it. So there's no battle with the self. The battle with the self is because people need external motivation. When your internal motivation is so strong that you want to do something, there's no battle. Why battle with yourself? Yogis don't battle no battle for us. If we don't want to do it, we don't do it. (laughs) If we're doing it, we are self-motivated. So there's no battle. There's no external motivation required for us to do that purposeful, mindful activity. So everybody battling with themselves, they're going somewhere they don't want to go or living with somebody they don't want to live with or working in a company they don't want to work for or doing something they don't want to do. So there's a battle with themselves. There's no battle with yourself. It's a doesn't exist. It's a created story. I'm battling with myself. No, you're not. You just don't want to do it. Accept it. And then maybe you have a higher goal. Say, okay, I want to, I have a certain fitness achievement. So I'm going to battle with myself for 21 days till I build a habit so that I get this uh, type of movement into my system. Okay. But that's not really battle with yourself. That's just you finding other ways to motivate you. Then in 21 days when it becomes a habit, it's pretty much on autopilot.
0: Right. Definitely wanted to explore the benefits that you've uh, seen from ninjutsu or martial arts with life in general. And I think we can tie it in with the scrolls that you brought. Yeah. I'd love too. to show everyone.
1: So the grandmaster types out, I mean, writes out these yes. beautiful uh, scrolls for us every time we go to Japan. So this one says, Senkyaku Lai. Yeah. yeah, it means 10,000 uh, visitors 10,000 times. Okay, so that's one. I don't know if we can show you all, but we'll show you a few. I brought a few. Uh, this one is the daruma.
0: Stand
1: up. Let's, this way. This is the daruma, or the Bodhi Dharma. Dhyana went to China and became Chan, and then uh, that went to Japan and became Zen. Right. So that's Dhyana. <laughs> right. So I have one
0: more. I'm sorry, could you just explain this one again? So, this is 10,000 customers 10,000 times, right?
1: Yeah, the Japanese saying is Senkyaku Bunlai. So, sorry. it's written outside shops. He gave it to me when I was starting a business. Oh my. Oh, me. Okay, we'll, we'll come we'll back. We'll build to this. it again. No way. And this one says, ah, this one says, Shiken Haramitsu Daikomyo, which means may you have, maybe I'll bring it to the front. Haramitsu. Dai Komyo, which means may you have enlightenment or Satori in every moment. Dai Komyo. Dai means big. Dai means big. Komyo <laughs> is Satori. So this is Shiken Haramitsu Dai komyo, which means may you have the big Komyo, enlightenment or Satori in every moment. Haramitsu is Paramatma. May you discover the divinity and have that moment of Satori in every moment. And this is something we chant before every class. I think it's also a Buddhist um, mantra, which they chant at the temples and stuff. So the application in life is tremendous because like I said, today's battles are not fought in battlefields. So whether it's simple concepts like Pudoshin, which means immovable heart, it's very applicable in life because you don't need to be swayed by compliments or you don't need to be affected by insults, right? So there's so many concepts like that. There's another one, Nana Karobi ayoki," which is fall down seven times, get up eight. Which means uh, be ready for failure and be ready for rejection. And be ready to have the resilience to keep going. There's many concepts like this.
0: Thank you once again. I really appreciate that you have brought this. Um, always appreciate what's happening here.
1: So with this, I've controlled his lower spine. This is one of the basic moves in our martial art. Because this joint here connects to the elbow, which connects to the shoulder. And with this, I can lock his lower spine with no effort from my side. The only thing he can do now is bend his elbow. Not so bad. Bend your elbow. That's the only way you can escape. And then with that, I can give him a bit more pain. So no matter how much muscle he puts in, do you want to see him cringe a bit?
0: Um, Yeah.
1: Why we can. Why we making? <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> no, just like that. And yeah. we have some other fun stuff like hi-fi.
0: I hope this will not lead to something high five. <laughs> and then we can break Oops. the wrist like this. So
1: <laughs> this is used in many places. And if you see, I'm not using any musculature. It's just bone structure. And then we can take things like this. So the essence of this martial art is that you move away from victim mentality, not just in a physical level. I'm teaching you the physical things because we have that also, mm-hmm. but in a mental and emotional level, so that you can never be at the receiving end of an attack. You're always in a non-victim mentality. And the attack is not just physical. It's also verbal. It's also emotional. It's also anything else. So you're always protected.
0: Okay. So before we move on to our final questions, usually what happens is I ask people to interpret what they've built. but Let's do it. Yeah. So in this case, I would love to get your explanation of the yin Yang.
1: So everything is a paradox everything exists with two sides and unless you understand one side you don't understand the other so this is a visual representation of it and the minute i saw the two colors i said that this came to me and since i'm training to do multiple tracks at the same time i can focus on more than one thing at the same time though western science says it's not possible the yogic science says it's more than possible in fact i've met people who can focus on 16 things at the same time they call shata And uh, you can train. I can do two or three at the same time. So this is an almost perfect yin-yang in two or three colors. Right? And this talks about everything. The paradox of life, the uh, mix of consciousness and identity, the descents of, descending nature of spirituality into human experience and the ascending nature of humanity into spiritual experience. Everything is Yin-Yang. Everything is Shiva-Shakti. Everything is a play of these two. Yeah.
0: And the line in the center represents the non-duality between these two. Right. This is something I want to cover with you because the most common misconception about Yin-Yang was that it's a duality. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's not.
1: See, they can be only... I mean, okay, in the yogic system, there's many, many different schools or uh, philosophies. Yeah. But there can be only two, essentially, all of them divide into two. And that is... Duality and non-duality. So in the duality philosophies, like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra is a duality philosophy, which is there's you and then there is um, achieving your Paramatma or achieving Kaivalya, which is the Supreme. Right? Mm-hmm. Then in the Ramana Maharshi system or many other systems, there's the Advaita philosophy, which is a non-duality. So the same thing would have gone to the East also, to the Far East. So of course, there are schools like maybe Theravada and other types of Buddhism, which have a yin and Yang, But the Zen schools don't have that. The yin Yang, Soto and Rinzai are two of the Zen schools where I've studied. So there are many forms of Buddhism. There's Theravada, Vajrayana, Mahayana, yes. so many types of Buddhism. So in the Zen methodology, there's no yin and yan. So it's a non-dualistic practice. But in the dualistic practices, they could have a yin and yan, this duality. These are just different philosophies. And you can decide which stories. You can decide which one works for you. There's no right or wrong. As long as it keeps you happy, joyful, peaceful, relaxed, smiling, in a state of bliss, in a state of acceptance, and adding value to yourself and the people around you and to humanity. And the, and the, and the, um, the proof is in the pudding. Because at the end of the day, if you're abundant in terms of health, wealth, relationships, joy, peace, that is a proof of the pudding. If you're not, fix that first. Practical.
0: Okay, so let's move on to our final questions. What are some books, movies, or people that are very strongly influenced in your life?
1: So I generally stay away from books that have other people's perspectives. So I haven't read books for a very long time. I like uh, factual books, like some historical books. We can't say it's really factual. It's somebody's perspective again. But I like books on quantum physics. I like anatomy. These are the kind of books I read. So I would say if you want to understand your body, the best book to read, pick up a book on
0: anatomy. Is there one that stands out? No,
1: just any book on anatomy, Any any book on biology, any book on endocrinal system, digestive system. Understand your own system first. Why worry about so many other complicated things? Read about how your pineal gland creates DMT, which is a master hormone, and then creates melatonin, serotonin. All of this I know because I'm reading about the endocrine system. These are the books that excite me. Uh, People, my grandfather for sure, um, who uh, was truly a master of many, many different things, and he passed on lot of things to me. And the grandmaster of my martial arts, which is Masaki Hatsumi. Maybe even my martial arts teacher, Shiva Subramaniam, who's in Bangalore, and his martial arts teacher, Arno, who's a 15-dan grandmaster who lives in Europe. Um, Who else, people? Um, My ex-wife, my present partner, they've taught me so much. All my students, I'm learning so much from them. Uh, Different teachers who I've had the privilege of meeting, whether it's Mooji Baba or Dainan Saraswati or Many of the Japanese monks, um, whose names I can't pronounce myself, that I've met over the Soto and Rinzai schools, well, real humans impact me. I don't really read autobiographies, and I don't really get impressed by humans who I haven't met. So I I, I like reading humans more than books. Uh, movies I love The Matrix. I like science fiction, so I like science fiction movies. Um, I like the Black Mirror series on Netflix. I like Westworld. Mm. I like this uh, TV show called Sensate, which talked about limbic resonance and said, we're not homo sapiens anymore. We are homo sensoriums. Interesting science fiction concept. Does it answer your question? It does. Okay, cool. (laughs) And the reason I don't read books is because I feel it interferes with certain amount of clarity I get through my own meditative states. When I come up with some answers, Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be interfered by somebody else's perception of what that is. For example, when I started dating uh, my partner, she said, um, I used to do this practice where every time I sat with the car, I used to merge with the car and I used to become one with the machine before I started driving. So I used to take like a good one minute, two minutes out of immediately putting the car in gear and moving. And I used to just mindfully connect with the car. And she's like, you know what? I read a book of Eckhart Tolle. This is what he says you should do. So in my head, I'm making a mental checklist. I don't need to read Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> I don't know what when what it is. Book, but yeah, exactly. Uh, similarly, I was telling somebody else about some idea that I had that once I make my ten million dollars, how I will start giving it away. It's she's like, "Yeah, the guy wrote it in Monk who sold his Ferrari." Yeah. So then I made a mental note not to read that book, and so on and so forth. So and so many books have been suggested to me. There's one author everybody keeps talking about, uh, Joe Dispenza, because he also talks about energy and stuff. So I've made a mental note not to read him. Nothing nothing wrong with his books. I'm sure they're great. But I feel it interferes with um,
0: anything that comes naturally. So I don't read books. Confucius once said that every man has two lives. And the second one starts when he realizes that he just has one. How do you contemplate our mortality? The fact that we're all going to leave this world one day. Does that is this something that's the back of your mind? Does that drive your actions? Does it influence anything you do?
1: I would say I would add on to Confucius. and I would call it an Anjanism. Every man has multiple lives. With every breath you take in, you're becoming alive again. You can use it, use it as a chance to be reborn. With every exhale, you're dying again. So the concept of mortality is misunderstood. Hold your nostril for two and a half minutes, you will understand mortality. That's it, that's all it is. It's overrated and misunderstood. Your body will perish, but who you are will not change. This is easily accepted in the Eastern uh, spiritual circles, whether it's yoga, meditation, tantra, or even in China and Japan. Now slowly being understood in the consciousness revolution, I call it in the Western world. But there are also many practices where you can retain your physical body for a very long time. Like One of my teachers is 2,500 years old. Another one is 250. And I learned from his student who was 60 years old uh, but had a body of a 30-year-old. And when we lived with him for 15 days, he'd climb up the mountain barefoot, wait for us on top there having tea. And uh, we were like young 30-year-olds old, and he was 60 years old. He showed me his passport. There's a body of a 30-year-old. So there are plenty of these anti-aging, reverse-aging practices that exist. You have to dive deep and see if that's what you really want. If you have a purpose, you'll be able to live longer. If you don't have a purpose, you won't live longer. And again, the idea that the only thing that perishes is your body. That's a very strong idea in the Advaita philosophy. And I kind of uh, resonate with that. Because we've created this distance between who you are and
0: your experience. So You will continue even when the body... So will you. Right. The second last question I usually ask, but I think you've partly answered throughout the interviews. What would you like your legacy to be like? Mm.
1: Honestly, at this point, I mean, my answer might change five years later. We'll have another podcast then. At this point, I don't really, it doesn't make a difference to me because I'm here for this moment. How can I impact somebody today? Whose life can I help change today? Who, Who can I share a perspective with so that something will spark in their own head to help them transform their life right now? This is my goal on an everyday, minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment basis. So legacy, I feel, is overrated and too much in the future. We yogis like to live here and now. I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. I don't even know if we'll be alive tomorrow. So why point legacy? Um, But yeah, there is a plan to start an ashram. (laughs) So and that's more for me than for legacy because I want to live in a nice beachside um, ashram and just practice my practices.
0: Final question. I'd love to hear your answer on this. What is the meaning of life? Ah, it's a strong one, huh?
1: No rapid fire? (laughs) (laughs) There's no meaning to life. Stop searching for meaning. Just live it. Because the minute you're putting drama, like meaning and stuff like that, you lose out on the experience of living it. So stop making life as a noun and make it a verb. And stop all those verbs that you're putting to life, right? And discard that and just experience it. Once you experience it, you know what it is. And if you really want to know what life is, hold your nostril for two and a half minutes. You'll be appreciative and you'll realize what it is. So I would say don't search for meaning because it doesn't exist. Because searching for it is a futile. And even if you find the meaning, you will realize it's futile. That you still had to just live a happy life. No matter what the meaning was. You still have to live happily, healthily, wealthily with lots of um, abundance in your health, wealth, relationships, in your love, in your finance and peacefully. You will realize this is what you want to do no matter even if you reach the meaning of life. Say hypothetically you find the meaning of life, you will conclude that I still have to be healthy, wealthy, wise and happy and have an abundance of everything. So why not just do that? Why this question of and then what is a kind of a boon and a bane. I mean, you ask and then what, it's fine. But then stop at some point. Otherwise, you'll keep asking and then what? And then what? You'll find the meaning of life. And then what? What is the meaning to finding the meaning of life? We can keep going on, no? But nice question. Thought starter for everybody to think about. Can I also ask you, what do you think is the meaning of life?
0: This podcast is the quest to us finding that answer. So every episode... Every episode I do, hopefully I get... And I obviously ask this question directly, but also with the questions that I ask, hopefully get closer towards... Has
1: anybody ever said there's no meaning to life?
0: Yeah. few of them have. Very good. You
1: have amazing guests then. (laughs) 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 And see, we are aligned. It's not that somebody is less spiritual than the other. At the end of the day, you're choosing guests who have had something to add as value. And they have a human experience with other humans are either aspiring to have or want to have. And they've come to this realization that searching for this meaning is futile. So just... Enjoy. Live in pleasure and
0: live with joy. Anjan, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you online, in person, how can they do so? I prefer in person because um,
1: there's a lot of energy exchange when we meet, like you've experienced. Um, But online, you can catch Meditate with Anjan on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, everywhere. Uh, Meditate with Anjan. TikTok.
0: I had one. I need to get back on it. But if there's anybody (laughs) who want to help me make TikTok videos, (laughs) uh, I'm hiring. Yes. And in-person, where can they find you? At
1: my meditation classes. Um, at my ashram when it's ready. And uh, maybe on the road somewhere, you come and see me. If you're meant to meet, come and say hi.
0: Fine, Sounds great. Anjan, thank you so much. It was thank a pleasure you. having you on the pleasure show. Pleasure having you. All
1: the best with your podcast. And senkyaku Ban Lai. Which is, I wish you 10,000 listeners 10,000 times. <laughs>